All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Sharif. Um, and this morning, I'll be reading from Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 38. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no, no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, Tucson. Good morning. I, uh, I'm surprised that I get to come down here and preach after I got told that I went to ASU and there's kind of this whole thing. But yeah, my wife went to U of A. We actually started dating in high school. My senior year of high school, we started dating. And then she told me after we started dating that she was going to go to U of A. And it was kind of like this whole thing. But like, I wasn't that big of an ASU person. Pretty much I went there because I applied to ASU and found out there's an application fee and I didn't want to pay that twice. So I didn't even apply it anywhere else. I just was like, I'll just apply one place and that's fine. So that's, so that, that is how much of an avid ASU person I am is I just happened to go to that website first and I applied to it. But then seriously though, she went to U of A and she was on freshman class council here at U of A and she was super involved and she did crew uh, at U of A. And then like our freshman year, we almost broke up and kind of a, one of the silly reasons why was that she was actually part of one of the people who painted the A at ASU Stadium. And so like, and it was one of those things where we're dating, I'm at ASU, she's at U of A and we're kind of like trying to not talk about it because it's a big deal. And then I find out out, like she didn't even tell me ahead of time and all of a sudden like I just see a picture of her with like red arms that she put a put a paint all down the U of AA and then all my friends are around saying like you need to break up with her man that's like <laughs> like how could she do that to you you know she did that to you she was offending you on purpose she was just trying to see and so it was kind of it was an interesting experience because I went from like not really caring to all of a sudden someone offended this thing that I was halfway associated with and then I kind of got like I even started buying ASU clothes and started getting all like wrapped up into it but then she, she went to U of A and it was really really positive we didn't break up because of that even though we had a couple immature conversations about it. But then she ended up going to ASU and getting her master's, so which is what I call repentance. That's turning, <laughs> it's turning back. So, so now we, we both have degrees from ASU and she has degrees from ASU. So anyway, that's, that's our thing. But that, that's kind of like a, a funny illustration or a funny story about how most of the people that I know, some of the people who went to go to U of A are like lifetime passionate U of A people. Sometimes people who go to ASU are lifetime passionate ASU people. And some people just kind of halfway on purpose, halfway on accident, end up going there. And then by the end of it, they're like this like rivalry, like I can't be in the same room, like don't wear, like she, she my wife is much more of an avid supporter than I was. And I was like, I'm going to wear my ASU shirt and preach Tucson. And she like didn't think it was funny at all. Like it was not, it was not, not okay. But how like I got emotionally wrapped up into something that I wasn't at, at first, all that sold out about just because they happened to be around it and because people around me were saying, you should break up with her because of the way this is. And this is one of the ways that we actually develop and see and experience division and polarization and divide between people. 
A lot of what divides us as a church or divides us as a nation or divides us as a people are things that we kind of accidentally began to be associated with that weren't really, wasn't really born out of this prayerful commitment to something, but rather was just, I, I grew up liking the Steelers and I had this friend who likes the Cowboys and we can't talk to each other on Sundays anymore. And like people get in bar fights about things like football and people get in fights about things like which college you went to. And when you really think about it, like most of those are just, we wanna be a part of something. And so we're a part of something and people who aren't a part of the thing that we're a part of, in order to feel like we're a part of this thing, we have to kind of not like those people who aren't a part of this thing. And it's, a lot of it is just cultural, social pressure that we didn't really go looking for. But after a while, we might just recognize, oh, now I don't like those people and I'm not sure why, but it's been this way for a while, so I'm just gonna keep on going with it. And this text that we're preaching at here today in the book of Acts, it's actually the longest single story in the whole book of Acts. It's all of chapter 10 and the first 18 verses of chapter 11. So it is the most text we're going to see. And so what's actually happening here is the most offensive part in the book of Acts takes place here in this section. Now, any of you who weren't, didn't grow up in the first century as a Jew, it's gonna be hard for us to recognize the cultural divide that we see here in this passage. That the Jews hung out and ate with the Jews and anybody else was unclean. So far in the book of Acts, as we've been going through it, we've seen some Greek-speaking Jews become Christians, but we haven't yet seen full-throated Gentiles become Christians yet. And in this passage, these divided, historically divided, racially divided, ethically divided, morally divided, spiritually divided people, we're gonna see these Gentiles, these Greeks, become Christians. And it is so offensive that Luke actually records the story three times. And he gives us the most, most longest treatment of any story we see in the book of Acts in this whole long section. And a part of that is because we have to really recognize how offensive this would have been. That you baptized a Greek into this Jewish people. That that person who is far off is now being a part of us. Because they're baptized, they're now associated with us. And I'm not sure that I'm okay with that. And so what we see here in the very beginning, and this is kind of my big idea for here today, is that when the kingdom of God comes, when the spirit of God pours out, that the status quo of everyone and everywhere is disturbed in a really big way. The status quo, the way that things are, the cultural presuppositions, the feelings, the emotions, the, the default setting we have as we go about our lives, that when the kingdom of God comes, it disrupts everyone's status quo. No one is left off the hook. And before I even begin, I just want to ask us this question. Does God have the freedom in your life to move you out of your comfort zone? Or would that be a deal breaker in your faith? Does God have the freedom to come to your status quo, your cultural, familial, default mode of going about life and flipping it upside down? Does God have the authority to do that in your life? Because when the kingdom of God comes, that's going to happen. That you cannot meet Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit, and go about business as usual. It cannot happen. 
It happens progressively, it happens over time, it happens as we grow in our faith, but it happens. And I hope that we as people believe that the kingdom of God disrupting our status quo is not just to test if we're in or out, but it's to actually show us the better way of existing. And we're going to see that in this passage, that God comes and he disrupts the status quo of a guy named Cornelius, he disrupts the status quo of Peter, and he disrupts the status quo of the existing church in pretty significant ways. And so because this passage is kind of long, um, I'm not going to actually walk through and preach through the whole text because we'd be here for like four hours, but I'm going to draw out just a couple observations as we go through it. Um, but before we jump in, will you pray with me, and I'm going to pray for our hearts as we seek to submit to this text that God's given us. Father, I know that I love being comfortable. I know that I love seeming like things are fine. I know that I love uh, the way that I'm existing. And God, as I even look at this text, I see the ways in which you are calling me out of my comfort zone, out of my status quo, that you are disrupting me as an individual. I pray that as... I look at Cornelius' life, at Peter's life, and at the church, that I would get excited about the fact that you're disrupting my life. I get excited about the fact that you're disrupting our lives. Thank you for how good your gospel is, that you refuse to let things stay the way they are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in this text, there's a couple of headlines here. And so I'm going to outline kind of the flow here. So the first section is Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a centurion. He has a lot of power. He's a big deal. 600 people are under his command. And so the first thing that happens is Cornelius has a vision, and in that vision, he's told by God, hey, I've been hearing your prayers, but I'm going to send a guy to you. His name's Peter, and he's going to have to teach you some stuff. And so Cornelius is kind of like, okay, fine. So so Cornelius sends some people to go and get Peter. Then the next part of this story is that Peter has a vision, and this vision is super weird. I don't know if you have your Bibles open, but you can look at it with me. I just want to look at a piece of it. Um, in verse 12 um, of chapter 10, 10, 12, part of Peter's vision is there are all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And so if you're going, that sounds really weird. That sounds like an awkward vision. That is an awkward vision. Peter says in, in verse 17, he was inwardly perplexed, and so you're reading this vision that Peter's having, that these animals are coming down from earth, and it happens three times, and Peter sees this vision, and he's confused, and he's going, what does this mean? Why did it happen three times? Why is God telling me to eat these animals? And so then, after Peter's vision, shortly after that, the three people that that Cornelius sent to him show up at Peter's door. And so Peter's sitting there kind of waiting, not understanding the vision, and all of a sudden, three Gentiles, three unclean people, show up at Peter's door. And Peter's going, I just saw this vision that I should eat three unclean things, and here comes these three people, and you had to kind of think, Peter's going, am I supposed to eat them or listen to them? And, but... Peter's not an idiot. He recognizes I was supposed to spend time with him, not eat them. So he has this vision three times, these unclean things, these three so-called unclean Gentiles show up at their door, and then they hang out a couple days, and then after that, they journey back to Caesarea, which is where Cornelius is from, and Cornelius says, hey, Peter, you're come here because I had a vision to go and get you. And Peter goes, that's crazy because about that same time I had a vision that I was supposed to hang out with some unclean Gentiles. They all get together and Peter 
preaches the gospel in a pretty cool way. And this gospel sermon that Peter preaches actually is really interesting for us as Christians to look at. And here's one of the reasons why it's really interesting is because this is the first time in the book of Acts that the gospel is preached to non-Jews. So you might have been kind of like me, you're hearing these gospel presentations in the first couple chapters in Acts, and they're all about David and Moses and Old Testament stuff and Old Testament stuff. And if you didn't grow up in the church and you hear all these sermons about who are all these people, what are they talking about, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. A part of that is because those sermons weren't for you, they were for Jews in the first century. And so if you didn't grow up a Jew or grow up learning about the Old Testament a lot, this gospel presentation in Acts 10, 34 through 43 probably makes more immediate sense to you than any of the previous gospel presentations because it's not to a a Jewish audience, it's to a Greek or generally Western audience. And so if you read through that, you'll probably connect with a bit. So Peter preaches the gospel and before he even wraps up his sermon, then what happens is the Holy Spirit falls in this beautiful, magnificent way, and what happened in Acts chapter two when the Spirit fell on the Jews, the same type of thing starts to happen, and the Spirit falls in a magnificent way on all the Gentiles. The same thing. And what the text literally says is Peter and the people who came with him were perplexed because the spirit fell on the unclean Gentiles just as, in the same way as it fell on the Jews in Acts chapter two. So then what happens is the spirit falls, they become Christians, they're all stoked about it, and then they say, well, let's get baptized. So Peter goes, who am I to get in God's way? And he baptizes them all. So that's kind of the first story, that's the narrative. Is vision, vision, journey, gospel, baptized. That's the story, what we got so far. And then what happens in Acts 11, 1 through 18, is Peter goes back to the church and has to tell them about what happened. And the church is grumpy about it. They're like, now wait, you, those unclean, you, but they're that, they're like that, and we're like this, and you this, that, And so Peter has to retell the story and he gets, almost has to go on the defensive about it. So here's what we're gonna see. I I want us to look at this story, Cornelius' conversion, um, Peter's experience of going to the Gentiles, the Greeks, and then also look at the church and see that how when the kingdom of God comes, it disrupts our status quo. And I wanna look at how it disrupts Cornelius first, then I'll look at how it disrupts Peter second, and then how it disrupts the church third. So look at me with Cornelius. I don't know if you have your Bibles open, but we're gonna be in Acts 10, verse one. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius and Centurion. So this Centurion is a powerful person. As far as career aspirations go, he's doing really well. He makes a lot of money. He probably makes five to 10 times more what the ordinary soldier makes. So kind of like in today's standards, if an ordinary soldier makes 25 to 35,000, this guy's making 200 to 300,000 a year, like in our current 21st century standards. He has a lot of people who report to him. He has power, he has influence. He's doing well. Verse two says he's a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So there's a couple things here. He was a devout man who feared God. He believed in God. And he was kind of afraid of God. This, this phrase, feared God, is one that the book of Acts talks about multiple times. These are Greeks who have kind of from afar 
admired the God of Israel, but they haven't yet taken the formal step of becoming a Jew, which is circumcision, which is kind of understandable. I don't want to like go all in until I know that I'm all in. And so he's kind of like, picture in his mind, he's a wealthy family, he's got great career going on, he, it, he believes in God, but he hasn't yet given his whole life to him, and he does a lot of good things. He gives alms to the poor, and he prays. Cornelius is a good guy, he has a good career, he has a lot of stuff going on, he has a lot of things in his camp, he's doing pretty good. But then what's required of him? Turn with me forward. So what does Peter preach to him? This is Acts 10, 43. After Peter has his vision and Peter comes and meets Cornelius, he preaches the gospel. And so there's a couple of verses I want to look at here as he's preaching the gospel. Verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now this cuts both ways. If I said God is not partial, what we tend to assume and think is that that means that all people are welcome in. That's true. But what it also means is that all people are invited to repent. God is not partial. You could be living a good life, having everything going your way. You could be down and out, down on your luck, not have a lot of money, rich, poor, good family, bad family, powerful, powerless. God shows no partiality. All are welcome and all are called to repent. God shows no partiality. Verse 36, as for the word he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So Cornelius feared God, kind of like in a vague God sense, but Peter zooms in here and says, it's not about God in a vague far off sense, it's about Jesus, the person of Jesus. I have a lot of friends who aren't Christians, they're not offended by the idea of God. Yeah, I believe God exists, I believe God might be out there, I believe that God might judge me one day. Jesus, pass. Jesus, that guy's exclusive. Jesus, that guy told me how to live. That guy was a little radical for my taste. I'm more of a moderate. Preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And in verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. This is kind of how they did apologetics in the first century. They could literally say, hey, you were there. You saw it. It's a lot easier. (laughs) And they could say, "Uh, I was there, it didn't happen. That's not what happens. They go, oh yeah, we were there, we saw it, we saw it happen. We saw what he did. It doesn't really work in the 21st century. Someone goes, I have questions about faith. And you go, you, 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 that doesn't work. No, that doesn't, no. But this is seriously one of the ways that Luke does um, apologetics, answering hard questions in Luke, is he says, hey, you guys were there, you saw what happened. And the people go, we did see what happened. But notice how still the spirit has to come Still, there has to be a preached word. And because our default mode as people is not to understand what's happening around us. We need this Holy Spirit to write it on our hearts and interpret it to us in a way that means and makes a difference in our lives. You yourselves know, you were there, you saw it. Verse 38, how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good. So that word, doing good, appears nowhere else in the New Testament, kind of in the original language there. And it was a word that a whole bunch of Greek philosophers and Greek ethicists used to talk about being moral and doing good things. So Cornelius probably thinks he's doing good. Peter's saying, Jesus is the one who did good. 
And to the Jews, they wouldn't have really understood that phrase because they didn't go around reading Greek philosophers all the time. But Cornelius would have recognized that the ideal life that the philosophers talked about, the perfect person that the philosophers are kind of thinking about and looking for, that person, you don't need to look for him anymore because it's in Jesus, God's son. And lastly, in verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Cornelius, good guy, probably doesn't feel totally dissatisfied with his life, kind of good suburban life, probably a nice house, things going for him, doing good stuff, and he's still invited to receive forgiveness for his sins because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of times, depending on what background you came from, you kind of hear a lot of stories about, I was addicted to this, and then I came to faith, or I was down and out, and then I came to faith, and it's about these stories of how these people who are obviously leading immoral lives coming to faith and being better, but what Luke gives us right here is a story of a guy who was pretty much doing okay, but he needed the gospel of Jesus as much as anybody else as much as anybody else. And a lot of times what keeps us away from the gospel is not our outright rebellion, but it's our good works that that we use to prove ourselves and prove our goodness. This happens a lot of time in my life where I might be having a week where I'm a little holier than usual, where I'm not sinning as much as I ordinarily do, and subconsciously in my mind I start thinking like, I'm doing pretty good with God because of how moral I've been this week. And what that actually is proving to me is that I'm not resting on the gospel of Jesus for my identity, but I'm secretly trying to still prove it and add to it. And some of you might be here today who, you might generally be okay with the Christian God. He might be far off. You think he's out there. You might be here because you're trying to continue to try and be a good person. But you might think you're good enough that you don't really need to have your sins forgiven. That might be for someone else. Or some of you might be like me. You grew up in the church and you keep getting into this period and this way of thinking that I've been pretty moral. I kind of have earned something now. Both disbelieve the gospel. And I want to see first that Cornelius' view that he could give to the poor, pray, and believe in God, and that makes him okay in God's eyes. That's not what makes you okay in God's eyes. Praying, giving to the poor, and believing in God is not impressive. God is not impressed by those things. God is only impressed by the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, and if you believe in him, you can receive forgiveness in his name. And I hope that we as a people can recognize that nothing is impressive to God besides covering myself in the blood of Jesus. Cornelius says, I'm doing okayness, is disrupted by the kingdom of God as it breaks in his life. Now let's look at Peter. Peter has a vision. This is one of, the, one of the things that kind of blows me away. It looks really arrogant on paper, but when you unpack it, it kind of happens in my life all the time. Verse 14, after Peter hears the voice of the God saying, Peter, kill and eat, Peter says, by no means, Lord. I haven't heard the voice of God audibly, but I like to believe I wouldn't say, eh. (laughs) I haven't heard it audibly, but if I do, I hope I don't respond how Peter does. But yet all the time, I see words in Scripture that make, would cause me to do something uncomfortable, that would cause me to lose money on my taxes, that would cause me to, to do something that I wouldn't want to do, and I go, hmm, I don't think I'm there yet, pass. Three times Peter gets this vision. 
You remember a time when Peter heard the voice of God before three times and denied it three times before previously? Peter has a spirit. Peter's doing the Christian thing. Peter's an apostle. Peter has preached and thousands of people have come to faith and he's still dealing with hard-heartedness and he still has to repent and just like Cornelius, he still has to find forgiveness in the blood of Jesus and in nothing else. You think this is bad news for Peter. Peter gets his status quo disrupted in a really big way, so significantly here that he has to hear a vision three times. He has to have these experiences that soften his heart to the Greeks. But even then, later on in his ministry, he falls back into it. Let's look at this verse in Galatians 2. This is Paul writing about what happened in a church Peter was a part of. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Cephas is Aramaic for Peter because he stood condemned. So this is Paul putting Peter on blast in front of a lot of people. For, Peter, for certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when he came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, who we've seen a lot about, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Peter hears a vision three times. He sees these Gentiles receive the gospel and get baptized. He spends time with them for a long time. He eats with them. He has fellowship with them. And then later on in his ministry, he's going about... uh, eating with people and spending time with people and here come these curmudgeon grumpy religious people and he pulls back from the Gentiles and kind of does a I'm not with them thing again. After this experience of seeing the Spirit fall on the Gentiles, after this experience of him spending time with the Jews, with the Gentiles who became Christians, after God giving him this vision three times, Peter still defaults back into his status quo a number of years later. And it takes Paul who is not subtle, to look him in the face and give him a how dare you. You preach the gospel that there's no longer Jew nor Greek, but there now is one new person in Christ Jesus. Have you found that to happen in your life as well? Where you said, before I was a Christian, I did all these things. Now I'm a Christian and I still do a lot of those things. I hope you can look at Peter's story and sense that the grace of God is not just for non-Christians like Cornelius, but it's for Christians who keep reverting back to their evil behaviors, who keep subtly engaging in racism, who keep keeping a division where there should be no division, who keep falling back into the ways of their evil culture instead of being a holy and pure people who are separate to be a light to the nations. What are some of the things in your life that you, when you became Christian, swore, I would never do this ever again, and yet here you are? Do you have people in your life, like Peter had Paul, who can point you back to the gospel and say, you know you're better than that? You know what the gospel says. You know what the scriptures say. Not saying, maybe you're not a Christian, you should doubt your salvation, but saying, you know the gospel. We experience vision drift all the time, especially as Christians. Peter was part of this culture that for thousands of years had been racially divided in a gross and unhealthy way. 
one commentator said he's an heir to this tradition of racist thought. His parents, his parents before that, his community, that community before that, all the way back. This systemic divide between people that they was born into. The spirit of God is miraculous, but we're naive if we think that we can just stop being influenced by the negative culture that's around us. That's not how it works. I think about the division that we see in the church nowadays and we see everywhere uh, racially, socioeconomically, politically. The Pew Research Center put out a report that said people, millennials, that's people my age, are now would rather marry someone of a different religion than a different political party. Can you imagine a Christian saying, I'd rather marry someone that I have a totally different vision for who God is than marry someone who might vote blue sometimes or marry someone who might vote red sometimes. That's, if you're age 18 to 35, most of your peers would rather marry someone of a different religion than marry someone of a different political party. And I don't see a lot in the church in terms of political division where a lot of people are really working to undo that separation and that division. I see a lot of, can't believe people said that about the healthcare bill, go ahead and unfriend yourself on Facebook. That's what I see. If you don't toe the line on my vision of public orthodoxy, then get off my wall because I don't want to talk to you. Peter, withdrawing from the Gentiles, we do it in subtle ways all the time. And Peter's invited to repent and he keeps having to be invited to repent throughout the course of his Christian life. And praise God that he had Paul in his life to call him on it because his turning back to his old ways was causing other Christians around him to turn back with him. And if you're a Christian, you have to recognize that just as Peter led Barnabas astray when he walked in unrepentant sin, there are people in your life that your unrepentant sin is hurting. This isn't just a me and Jesus problem. It's a communal problem. The church gets its stuff disrupted too. Cornelius gets disturbed. His status quo is disturbed. Peter gets disturbed. And I want to look at the church that gets disturbed. So look at me in Acts 11. So the church gets its status quo disturbed just like Peter and Cornelius do. And when they say church here, I mean whatever the current body of people were who are Christians. Verse chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brothers were throughout Judea, heard the Gentiles had received the word of God. Good news. The nations, like God called Israel to, are being reached with the word of the Lord. Good news. Maybe not. Verse two. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circus party criticized him. Oh my gosh. It's really easy to look at some other people and say, aren't those people idiots? Criticized him, saying. So Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament was that the nations would stream to Jerusalem to hear the word of the Lord, to be taught by God. And now that's happening. And their first reaction is criticism. It's really easy for Christians to criticize other Christians, for churches to criticize other churches. I love that at Redemption Tucson, you guys pray for other churches because what I see happen a lot 
is that churches love criticizing churches. And now I'm criticizing churches that criticize churches, so I'm part of it. <laughs> I'm part of it. But it's easy. It's easy to criticize when God's work is happening somewhere else we're not close to it. They criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter baptized these people. He's not mad they got baptized. Peter preached the word to these people. He's not mad they got the word preached to them. Peter shared a table with them, and that's what makes him mad. The fellowship, the crossing of boundaries. Look up here, look up here. go up the page a little bit. When Peter's preaching the gospel, verse Acts 10, 41. So it says, Jesus appeared on the third day, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. After we rise from the dead, we're going to eat and drink. Amen? Amen. That's a good thing. Um, no more shame from what we eat. But we're going to eat and drink after the resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead, he eats and drinks. Um, there's this quote from Tim Chester I want to share with you guys. Um, Tim Chester wrote a book called The Meal with Jesus. If you're struggling in your life going, how can I be a part of God's mission? And you have no idea for how, um, I would say, one, connect with one of the pastors and ask them. But two, get this book, A Meal with Jesus. It's really simple. It's really clear. It makes a lot of obvious things. But I'm actually going to share with you the best quote from it, so don't buy it. So it's good. There are three ways the New Testament completes this sentence. The Son of Man came blank. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19, 10. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Luke 7, 34. The first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. Jesus is handing out God's party invitations. They read, you are invited to my party in the new creation. Come as you are. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus ate with us. Peter goes to the Gentiles and eats with them. And then the church says, you ate with them. They should have known. They saw Jesus eating with people. And so recognize here how we, in theory, are all about reconciliation. I've yet to meet a single person who's like, mm, I'm against re reconciliation. I'm in favor of the division that's happening in the world. I don't think those people exist. I don't think they're out there. Actually, they probably do exist, but I haven't met any of them. So. But when it comes to actually doing cross-cultural time, when it comes to actually humanizing people whom you vehemently disagree with, when it comes to actually having people over for dinner, sitting out down and talking with people as humans, when it comes to you ate with that person, how could you? You shouldn't meet with that person. Don't you know what they represent? Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody meet with that person? Why would you eat with that person? What are, what are you doing to be a part of healing the division that's in our world? Because if you don't know where to start, you're probably not called to be a politician. Some of you might be. Eat with people. 
take someone out to lunch and do it every couple weeks. It's a great square one. That's what Jesus started doing. That's what Peter does. And that's what the religious sectarian people get mad at. But here's the biggest miracle in all of the New Testament right here. That's sarcastic, but you see it right here. So Peter shares the story with them. They're mad at him, and he goes, hold on. I'm not going to judge them for their position, but I'm going to tell them the story of what God has done, and that's going to soften their heart. Peter doesn't go, you're judgmental, how could you? Peter goes, let me share the gospel with these grumpy old people. Verse 17, so Peter shares the story of what just happened in verses 1 through 17 in, in Acts 11. And then after sharing that story, Peter says, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Verse 18, and when they heard these things, they fell silent. Their opinions are being dramatically challenged by the gospel They hear new information about what God is doing. They hear the scriptures. They hear about God's work. And they're not defensive. Their criticism ceases. And they fall silent and listen. That is a miracle. Isn't that a miracle? I mean, I'm joking, but I'm serious. That's a miracle. When's the last time someone totally was in my face about how I was wrong and I fell silent? I changed my position and then worshiped as a result of it. When's the last time that happened in my life? Because it's a long time. What if someone exposed to you that your theology was off, that your way you're doing life is off, that you are still battling with the things in your past? Do you have the maturity to hear the words of God, internalize them in silence, and then do differently afterwards? Because this church, who's been racist for a long, long, long time, hear the words of God and their attitude changes. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. God shows no partiality. All are welcome and all are invited to receive forgiveness through repentance. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's a better way. It disrupts our culture's way of thinking. It disrupts our status quo. That even if we're good people with our life together, and even if we've been racist for 10 generations, there's no partiality. All people are invited to repent and receive forgiveness in the gospel. And I'm just deeply encouraged by Peter's life and the way that he regresses and repents and seeks to be faithful again and again and again. And I hope that we can all follow him after, after doing that. God's going to push back on your status quo this week, and I hope that we can be silent and change and live differently. Let me pray for us. God, you're so good. I look at how you work in Cornelius' life and the way in which you're able to take his good works, acknowledge him, but yet still invite him to receive forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I pray for those of us in the room who are finding our identity and being a good person, that you'd invite us gently to repent of that. I pray for those of us in this room who keep falling back into our old sin patterns, that you'd show us Peter's life and how good your grace is. And God, I pray for the church that would be a place known for eating with all types of people. 
that we'd be a place known for seeking to make peace where there is division. Thank you for this long text of scripture, but how it makes one point, and that's that you show no partiality, but you disrupt all of us the same. In Jesus' name, amen.